Hi guys, this is uh, Jeremy Dillon, and this is a repost of an episode that I did last year with Dr. Warren Zanes, formerly of the Del Fuegos, and most recently the author of the great um, book Petty, which is a biography of Tom Petty, and uh, he's the subject of this episode, and as I'm sure anyone listening to this knows, uh, Tom Petty passed away last night, and I've had a few people tweet at me or um, post on uh, comment on Instagram asking me to repost this episode. So I thought I would put it out there um, in lieu of a proper Tom Petty tribute, which I will hopefully get together at. Um, at some point, but yeah, uh, here is my episode again with Warren Zanes on the self-titled album debut 40 years ago, Tom Penny and the Heartbreakers. Hello and welcome to My Favourite Album, where each week I talk to a different guest about an album they love and how it's influenced and inspired them. My name's Jeremy Dillon. I'm a journalist, photographer, music industry exec and the director of the music documentary Jim Lauderdale, The King of Broken Hearts. My guest today is a rock historian, musician and author. A rare case of a songwriter whose formal education wasn't wasted. He's both a tunesmith and performer with Del Fuegos and under his own name, an actual honest-to-God professor and the author most recently of the incredible, definitive, petty, the biography. Dr. Warren Zanes, welcome to My Favourite Album. Thank you for having me. And my favourite album is the debut of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. self-titled debut which is 40 years old this year right uh you it sounds like you've done the math before i have so that that sounds right i was just looking at it and marveling not at the fact that it's been 40 years but it clocked in at just over 30 minutes isn't you know i miss that about records i feel like probably since the advent of the cd records have just expanded exponentially in running length and I miss albums like this that used to clock in at you know between 30 and 35 minutes yeah taking the heartbreakers mojo recording as a kind of counterpoint it's very long but it's got such good material that you can understand the predicament that they have you know now the medium allows this kind of inclusion and it's really hard to let these things go. But, but I'm with you that when it was all on vinyl, there were limitations that were really on our side. It was just, it was the right length. I actually think it's really interesting to be talking about this first Heartbreakers record at the moment that we're doing it because 
Petty is in the middle of reviving the Mudcrutch project again, which is, for people who don't know, actually you would be more qualified to give the explanation of this than I am, but it's the band that sort of preceded the Heartbreakers and that the Heartbreakers were born out of in a way. Yeah, it's uh, the band that got signed by Denny Cordell was Mudcrutch and signed as a band and they went into various studios to make a record for Shelter Records, which was Denny Cordell and Leon Russell's label, and had been a really successful label kind of up to that point and then started to have some harsh realities of commerce come down on them. But the Heartbreakers were poised to become the next Shelter Act. You know, Doit Twilley uh, was, was another. And the Heartbreakers... What, what's really important about that period, and, and Petty and Campbell in particular really talk about this, is it's one thing to be a great live band, but to become a great recording band isn't a matter of putting some microphones in front of the group. It's, it's a different animal. You know, post-Sergeant Pepper, you know, a record could be so many things. So you wanted to find the right record. And the possibilities are close to infinite. When Mudcrutch is on shelter initially, the, the first obstacle is to, to do that very thing, to become a recording band. And they put out the one single, but it was ultimately a project that was aborted. The, the band was let go, and Denny Cordell kept Petty. And then Petty went to Cordell and said, I got to keep Mike Campbell with me. And so there you had the seeds of the next thing, which was Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. But you can kind of see, you know, it was, to me, you know, Petty is, is infinitely interesting. And going back and reforming Mudcrutch is, is a perfect kind of representation of his idiosyncratic choices that make perfect sense you know going back who goes back and reforms the band that that was your band before you got famous you know he's got he could put out a record and he could sell more with the heartbreakers he could play in bigger venues but this isn't what drives him he really put it simply said i felt like there were some songs back there but mud crutch was like his phantom limb like no one else could see that it was right there but he felt it every day and finally did something about it. And it's artistically, it's just really interesting to see a guy this at his career stage make a choice like that. How much of it do you think is because it's not exactly the same band that like in terms of who's in the band and you know it's new material so how much of it do you think is him wanting to recapture what Mudcrutch was originally and how much of it do you think is just the desire to make a, a record and be able to tour when in play shows where he doesn't have to do won't back down and, and free falling in the set 
That's an interesting question. I definitely don't think... It's probably nice that he doesn't have to do I won't back down and run down a dream. You, you know, no matter how much he recognizes you know, what those songs have done for him and what they've done for others, uh, everybody wants to get up there and play all fresh material. It's just a different experience on stage. But I don't think that's what motivated him. I really think it's exactly as he said. Uh, he thought there were some songs back there. But as you're pointing out, he didn't go back and grab the last version of Mudcrutch. Because Mudcrutch had some members coming in and out. And he chose the members who he thought were going to be the best Mudcrutch. So it was Tom Ledden. It wasn't Danny Roberts. Petty playing bass, not Charlie Souza. And, you know, not to take anything away from those guys, but Petty, even if he doesn't present it to the world in a kind of, you know, master plan that's 700 pages long, he's got a plan. And those choices were far from arbitrary. So what kind of plan do you think Petty had going into making this first Heartbreakers record in... I'm not sure if they cut it in 76 or whether it just came out in 76, but, you know, 75, 76, that's the first LP that's going to, and it's going to have his name on it now, not Mudcrutch. So what do you think his intentions were? I don't think he knew enough yet to have a plan. I think it was just a, a young guy with a lot of ambition and a lot of talent who just wanted to make sure that damn record was made, you know. There is transitional material like Hometown Blues and Stranger in the Night. You know, Stranger in the Night, you have a couple session guys from the Tom Petty solo sessions. Hometown Blues, you got Charlie Souza playing on it. You've got, I think, Randall Marsh is on that. So there's some transitional material there. But I really think one of the things that gives it, it, it its crackle is that you really hear these guys finding their way. They don't know how to be a recording band. And on the first record, you get to hear them, you know, working to become that. And they've got this amazing situation, which, you know, if more bands had the situation, we'd be better for it as listeners. But they had all the studio time that they wanted. There they were, you know, Denny Cordell finally got wise and stopped sending them into commercial studios where he was paying by the hour and he set up a studio next to the shelter offices where they could just really camp out camp out and make mistakes experiment without the clock ticking you know now we do, we actually have more of that because of what home recording has become but I, I'm not sure that people take the opportunity that it affords nonetheless you know to really sit there and go Look, we know what our band sounds like when we go play live. We're two guitars, bass, drums, keyboards. You know, our influences are pretty clear. We know what we sound like, but what could we become as record makers? You know, that's a, that's a, if you fully engage that question, 
It's really interesting. I would say most bands don't fully engage that question. But the Heartbreakers were willing to bring themselves into deep discomfort to figure out what record they had in them. One of the interesting things for me about that idea that you were just talking about of like finding the sound of the band on record on this album is that from what I've heard of the earlier, like the, some of the Mudcrutch recordings, this is really the first instance where you really hear Tom Petty's singing voice as we would come to know it on a, on a recording. Cause to me, some of that earlier stuff, it sort of sounds like Roger McGuinn doing a Bob Dylan impression. But then when you get to this record, it sounds like it sounds like Tom Petty. Do you think that was he really honed the way he was going to sing or the sound of his voice while they were in the studio working out what the sound of the band was? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I totally agree. I partially agree. Because he did go through a process of finding his voice. I mean, I, I actually think that one of the really amazing things is that you could also you could make the argument that maybe he didn't find it until wildflowers you know maybe it was really that process because he begins to come i think jeff lynn brought him you know this is a bit of a metaphor but closer to the mic you know closer to the listener you know jeff lynn favors taking the effects off and having a pretty dry vocal so it, it increases the presence and once that presence was increased, then the intimacy goes up one more notch. And Petty was already very intimate by virtue of his writing. But it, it, it increases the intimacy even more, and then Wildflowers becomes possible. And he's doing things with his voice at that point that he hadn't done up to then. So it's not that he, he wasn't bringing everything that was needed to that first record, second record, third record, fourth record. It's that he is pretty relentless in his pursuit of the fullest range of possibilities, whether in relation to his band or his voice. So you could say, like, what what makes those Heartbreakers record interesting is that he's never stopped the becoming. But as far as the voice, like, when I listen to the demos done in Ben Montench's living room, I think Petty's voice is is pretty there and it's and it's interesting I, you know i talk about this in the book is not not everybody was betting on that voice it was it was a little too unconventional sometimes it got you know more nasal it's like could, is this a lead singer do they do this yeah we know dylan does but like for even this guy could you know you can't make rules around guys like bob dylan you know there was doubt there and i think petty had some self-doubt but I listen back to it and I go, no, maybe it's because I know all that's yet to come. But I hear it and I go, no, no, this guy is, he's already singing enough to be able to back those songs. He's, he's do, doing it. And I listen to uh, you know, Lost in Your Eyes is one that I, I've never, ever gotten tired of. And that, that's Mudcrutch era. There's not a whole lot going on in the song production-wise. 
And Petty's not saying a whole lot more than he was lost in her eyes. But there's something in terms of emotion. I'm like, this thing's fully cooked. It's it's all there. When you were putting the book together, when you were, I mean, both in the, in the research process and after you'd gone through the whole process of writing the book, was this an album that you re-evaluated or, or, or just generally, actually? I'd be, I'd be curious how your opinion of some of these records changed by virtue of delving further into them and, you know, learning more about the, the process in which they were made. My fear was that I would get to the end of this project and I would be done with my favorite artist. I just wouldn't be able to listen anymore, which I think can happen to people when they do long-term projects. They can go, please do not play that artist for me ever again. And it was, and it was quite the opposite. And with this record, what amazed me is that it kept sounding fresh. It just doesn't lose that. Now, that may not be for everybody, for, but for me, it didn't lose it. And I, and I think it's because of the very thing I said. The sound of hearing people find their way is a great sound. I had, I had a conversation with uh, Mitchell Froome, who was the producer when I was in the Del Fuegos. And I was complaining about classic hits radio. This was like 15 years ago. Uh, I was like, classic hits radio, like, you know, what's with that? And he said, the reason people like classic hits radio is because they are hearing people in the studio on those records who didn't know what they were doing, finding their way. It's a good sound. And it's true. Like, Hendrix didn't know where he was going. The Beatles didn't know where they were going. Stones didn't know where they were going. Dylan... Now, when you're in the studio, we have such a capacity to, you know, I want the sound of the guitar on getting better, you know. You can dial it in. You can get pretty pretty damn close. Whereas you used to, you know, try, fail, and along the way find something new. And that's, that is oftentimes where freshness comes from. And on the first Heartbreakers, like, you can hear exploration you can hear, you know, let's just try it and see what happens. And that, that often, if you have good songwriting, as a production model, let's see what happens. We've got the time in the studio and nobody's going to stop us. You can arrive at some pretty compelling stuff. But in this case, you're starting with Tom Petty's songs and the Heartbreakers as the band. So you have pretty good building blocks. And then you add that, you know, spirit of let's see what we can find. And you've got something that 
like I said, crackles. Like I can't, you know, I can't, I can't find the words, but crackles always seems to satisfy me. So what was your initial encounter with this record when it, when it came out? I'm assuming you got it when it came out originally. Well, I, I'm, I'm the younger brother. So there's, you know, three kids in my family and, uh, in two-year increments. So when I was 11, my sister was 13, my brother was 15. So there was a kind of trickle-down of records. But we, we were in Concord, New Hampshire, which was close enough to the signal of WBCN in Boston that we listened to BCN. We listened to oldies radio, WROR, and then FM radio in WBCN. And BCN picked up this first Heartbreakers record, playing Breakdown. Baby, break down. Go ahead, give it to me. Break down, honey, take me through the night. Break down, not standing here. Can you see? Break down, it's all right. It's all right. You know, there were really two big stations in the country who did that, played it, nothing happened with the record, they stopped playing it. You know, you can only, you're only in rotation for so long. And then a promo man with some self-empowerment went back at it and went back to BCN, back to the other station, got them on the record again, which is really a very, I don't know of any other circumstances. Because a, a, you know, a programmer at a radio station has promo guys coming in the door wanting that programmer to play their record. So you, you never have enough room to play what all of these jackasses are bringing to you. And so the idea that you would go back to something you'd already played is almost ludicrous because you have too little room to begin with. But this promo guy, John Scott, got BCN to go back on the Heartbreakers. So there, up in New Hampshire, we hear the Heartbreakers the first time they're in rotation, and then they come back, and it's breakdown. And we grew up in a home that, you know, my mother had a good record collection, and my uncle lived upstairs from us. So we were on the first floor of this house. My uncle was upstairs. He played old rock and roll. She had Beatles, Stones, Dylan, Pete Seeger, Ian and Sylvia, Lead Belly. So she had folk. She had some, you know, Aretha Franklin, a little bit of R&B, the, the good, you know, rock. We hear Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers breakdown, and it's just, it sounds like some combination of all the stuff we love. And I think we probably couldn't have given words to it, but space is really compelling in a recording. You know, bands that can do space. And it's very hard to do because, you know, that's the effect of learning to make records is getting out of the song's way as it becomes a recording, which the Heartbreakers became, you know, like the best at doing that. When you listen to Breakdown, that's an early example of like them arriving there, you know, that live band becoming a recording band. But we heard this lean, muscular sound that made so much room for Petty's voice. It was just the natural progression 
from our uncle's early rock and roll with you know Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard and Sam Cooke. Our mothers, Dylan Stones, Beatles, Petty just seemed like, oh, they've each got their thing, and it's good, and now we got our thing, and it's good. Petty, just after that, just kept making really interesting records. But we, after hearing Breakdown, yes, we went down to the record store, which in Concord was Pitchfork Records, which is actually still there. Right. Which, which is incredible. And we bought the first Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers record and played the hell out of the thing. to touch on in reference to something you just said then which was the idea of the band getting out of the way of the song as a recording unit and I wanted to get you to talk about Benmont friend of the show Benmont Tench because I've always felt that one of his you know key points of genius was he never plays too much and he's, he's always willing to like underplay or step back or just sit out a verse or you know come in just for a moment if that's all the song needs, and he, it's a sort of a lack of ego about the way that he plays on records. Well, Jimmy Iovine will say, and has said in, you know, in various contexts, that if you wanted to make a, a record sound better, you turned up Ben's part. And I think there's truth in that. And sometimes you'll be listening to a Heartbreakers recording, and you go, Where, where's Ben here? And... He's actually higher in the mix than you realize. But it's, it's as you say that he can keep it spare or he can cut loose. You know, there aren't too many moments where he cuts loose. You know, but when he does, you know that he's got chops that go far to the left and far to the right. He somehow pretty early on, because he, he's in, in Mudcrutch, he's a writer and a, a player. So he's, he's writing songs more than Campbell at a certain point. It, but he, he even then seems to have a really almost intuitive sense for how to support the song. Maybe because he started writing so early that he, had, that he developed that sensitivity. I don't know. But he has a remarkable capacity that you know, a lot of people have called on, obviously, if, you know, in making their own records. Brought him in as a session guy because he's just got that in, intuitive sense. But what I, what I like is when, you th- when you're listening and you go, wait, where's Benmont? And then you just you realize, like, he's this huge presence. And, like, how did he walk in the room, stand in the center of it, and I didn't even notice that he came in, <laughs> you know? Wish I could say that about, you know, about myself. Because, like, when you enter a room, like, you, you know, you, you either trip, you know... You say something stupid to impress the pretty girl there. You know, like you draw attention to yourself. Like he's, he has something special that he does. Well, what impact did this record have on you as a musician? Like what stage were you at with your own songwriting, if, if you were already songwriting when you were listening to this record, and how did that sort of steer you in the future? 
the most I was probably doing was singing in the mirror in the bathroom after taking a shower and, and you know, pretending I was a part of that world, you know, like, like most kids. Uh, but I wasn't really, I wasn't doing anything. I went, I went uh, in the musical house that I grew up in. I wasn't playing, well, I played the four-string banjo, which is just, you know, a banjo version of the ukulele. You know, I was just suffering through Skip to My Lou. And, you know, there, there was no <laughs> thought to write songs. I was just doing the folk standards, taking these lessons begrudgingly. And uh, I feel like I was a lost kid. Like, I didn't, I didn't have much focus. I feel like I was just kind of, like, wandering through life for a, a long time. But I got, I got interested in... The music was always there, but I got... I got I was bad at sports until I found ski racing and then bicycle racing and was very focused on that. So I transitioned from being a bicycle racer and a student to being a member of the Del Fuegos with like a three-month period to learn how to play guitar. And in that period, you know, I, I like instantly realized because I started by playing, you know, my first song was the Everly Brothers' Bird Dog. A very simple three chord. You know, Buddy Holly was another one to reach for. Simple stuff, and that showed me that oh, you could do this. So I was kind of writing, but I came into the Del Fuegos as a guy just trying to keep up. You know, it's my brother's band. I was trying to keep up. He had this idea that I was going to be a lead guitar player, and I didn't need any background for it. And so, with three months of playing to early Stones records, I joined as the lead guitar player and uh you know it was that's not how you should start in a band it was really it was really like there's some romance to that idea but that's not how it should happen there's something very helpful in writing this story about the heartbreakers and the story about mud crutch becoming the heartbreakers and and all, all the work that they put into it you know because the the talent's just the baseline matter that you need and then there's the time and the focusing and this you know the the taking raw talent and giving shape to it and seeing like gee you know we know the voice and it has a sound but is there something behind the voice that is going to compel you to keep doing this which petty has the way I, I entered into it myself, I go, oh, it should be more like what the Heartbreakers do. But getting to explore their story helped me figure out my own. But this, you know, this, you know, did this record once I started writing and once I started playing, did it come back and inform what I was doing? Yeah, absolutely. And, and for the very reason that I, I keep saying is that you hear the sound of a band finding who they were as a, as a recording outfit. And... You can you can take it as a textbook. You can let's do it as a record. You can use it if a girl just broke up with you. You can use it just just like I said as a textbook. I mean, there are multiple uses for a, a really good record, and, and this has them all. Well, normally I end this show by asking a question that we already covered earlier in the interview. So I'm going to ask a different version of it that you're kind of uniquely qualified to answer in this case, which is. How do Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers feel about the album Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, you know, 30-something when you were putting the book together years on from its creation? 
I think uh, I, I, you know, I, I never like to speak for Tom, speak for any of the heartbreakers. But what, what I called from interviews is that they got a respect for it. Petty, I sense, has even more than respect for it than Mike. Because Mike will point to, oh, we were just learning, you know. But I think Tom will, will go a little deeper in his reflection and see the beauty of young guys that age given space to find, you know, what their collective voice was. And for him as a writer to find what his individual voice was, that... Man, if more young people had opportunities like that, imagine how different everything would be. I mean, everything. And I don't just mean the records that get made. I mean how, you know, the political life of this country would be. You know, how the other arts would increase in meaning. You know, but mostly young people will go from being kids to being, you know, married with jobs without ever getting a chance to sit for an extended period of time and say, who are we and what do we have to say? And what's our medium going to be? And what can we do with that medium? And who do we want to bring it to? You know, that's, people generally don't feel so empowered to do that kind of thing. You know, everybody's just kind of getting by. But there's something beautiful about young people getting bold enough and being given that opportunity to actually do it. Well, Dr. Zanes, thanks for talking to me today about your favorite album. Thank you for having me. That's it for another episode of My Favorite Album. Thanks for listening. I've been Jeremy Dillon. You can follow me at Mr. Jeremy Dillon. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash myfavoritealbum. Subscribe on iTunes. And if you dig the show, please leave a review. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. Music.